It is the 11 Dubcast. I'm Johnny. He's Andy. Is there anything going on? Do we have stuff to talk about? We finally, we we are getting close to the end of the traditional offseason, and it feels like, oh gosh, it's just going to go on forever. Are we going to have content? And then the gods of content came down and said, be careful what you wish for. And now we have this on our laps, and it's gross and weird, and none of it makes sense. And some people are pissed, and some people are optimistic, and some people are up like pissed that people are being optimistic. There's a lot going on. I don't want to rehash everything step by step because I don't know that's particularly useful, especially since we're recording this on Monday evening. It will be published and go live Tuesday afternoon. In between now and then, a whole world of change could happen. I just want to ask you, Andy, what are your immediate reactions to the discussions going on with college football, the potential of canceling the season outright, pushing it back possibly? Uh, the players emphatically, for the most part, not all of them, but for the most part, saying that they want to play, uh, their coaches backing them up. What What is your overall take on all of this? Yeah, I'm going to say that the slogan, life comes at you fast, has never been more appropriate than the past week of our lives. You think yeah. back to this time a week ago when we were sitting around the old campfire, we were still kind of like, well, you know, something's going to happen soon. We feel like it's going to happen soon. And then from Wednesday, basically, to Monday night when we're taping this, we went through about a month's worth of Sundays of Big Ten News where you go through the release of a schedule, and it's like, hey, wow, a schedule. And yeah. then, you know, literally a week <laughs> later, less than a week later, it's, no, there's not going to be a season. And then all of a sudden, seemingly overnight, uh, fans are on board with the idea of, hey, maybe these players need to have a union and a voice and a <laughs> seat at the table, which is a 180-degree reversal for you know 98% of the college football fan base. Side my, note, my, how stupid was it to release a schedule at that point and then act as if that was something that was going to be you know set in stone going forward? What a this, dumb decision. This is one of those things where you just love to be in the room to know what exactly happened in that sequence of events. Because if you're releasing a schedule on Wednesday and then, you know, less than five days later, you're like, yeah, we're probably on board with canceling this whole thing outright. Right. There's a whole lot of stuff that had to happen in between those two things. Uh, and, and some, you know, somebody made the comment on social media that, well, you know, they released the schedule because they had to, you know, because everybody else was. And I, and I don't know if Big I don't do anything. Yeah, do I don't anything. know if I they quite buy do. into that. Right, right. Because the Big Ten you know, legends and leaders and all that. They, they well, do they're the wealthiest thing. conference. They can set right. their own agenda. They don't need to be absolutely have their own TV network to carry the water. I mean, you, you, you know, so back, back to the, the top of mind, the top of the hour question, where am I? Um, you know, I, my optimism level is still, I would say less than 10% that we have a football season. It still feels more likely than not that mm -hmm. the powers that be, and by the powers that be, I mean, university presidents, of the Big Ten say, no, this doesn't make sense to put these uh, students. And, oh, by the way, our uh, potential legal liability <laughs> in harm's right. way and and not have a football season. But the groundswell, and it started, it feels like, almost with the parents of a lot of these players. Uh, Ohio State's uh, Football Parents Association, you know, almost in unison, jumped up and said, we want a season the mm -hmm. players, of course, Trevor Lawrence, uh, Clemson, um, and, and our own Justin Fields both were pretty vocal. We want a season. And then you started seeing the players line up. And, and then after that, it was coaches 
um, coming out, you know, but it really felt like when you had the parents coming out in unison saying, let our kids play. Okay. There's maybe there's some legs to this. Now here's the thing. Like you really have to dig into this and say, do the players and the parents and the coaches have that much influence over the presidents of the universities of the big 10 conference and, and the other conferences. And, and I don't know, I guess I'm somewhat skeptical uh, Mm. that they have that much influence. I think that there was such a groundswell of support probably makes a president say, Ooh, maybe we want to be a little cautious here about how we proceed. Uh, But, but I'm not sure if you're a president who feels like our university can't handle the potential exposure of, you know, on one side of our mouth saying we have to have, uh, you know, distance learning and we want our, our students to be safe and so on and so forth. And then on the other side saying, well, we got to have college football because, you know, billions of dollars at stake here. I mean, there's just, there's a lot going on there. If you're a university <laughs> president, like I'm not sure how important football is to you if you're the new president of Ohio State and deciding how to thread this needle. There's a lot to unpack. Yeah, and you're absolutely right about that. There is so much going on here, and there's financial concerns uh, involved. There's liability concerns. Obviously, the health aspect is huge. And then if you know players genuinely want to play, which, again, a lot of them very, very much seem to want to do, then I think that has to be part of the consideration. Here's the thing, and this is, this is what drives me up a wall about this entire narrative today and the way I've been following it and whatnot. People keep talking about how this isn't, it's the athlete's decision. If they want to take on the risk, that's their, you know, that's their prerogative. They're allowed to do that. If coaches want to take on that risk, if they understand that there are risks and they want to play and, and possibly get infected, but they understand that because they've worked so hard and all this stuff, then that, let them do it because that's their choice. That's not the situation that we are in. That is not what a pandemic is. A pandemic is collective. It affects the community. The reason why the powers that be at these universities, the the, the people making medical decisions, the people people making health public health decisions, are saying don't you know gather in large groups, socially distance. The reason why they're saying that are the exact same reasons why people are arguing against having a college football season. I understand if somebody's like, you know what, I don't really believe in that social distancing crap, or I don't think I should wear a mask. I can understand why if you believe that, you would also think that they should have a football season. But if you buy into the fact that we need to socially distance, and we need to limit crowd sizes, and we need to make sure people aren't gathering in large groups, then you also can't say in the same breath that, "Eh, you know, let them go ahead and just make their own decisions. Because that's not what this is about. This is about trying to prevent outbreaks of further clusters of infection that will then go on to kill people. That's the decisions that they're making on this. So by that metric, all right, you're going to have to weigh the advice of medical professionals, people who are telling you liability things, people are telling you things about like, you know, community spread of viruses and all that kind of stuff more than, hey, I really want to play. I've had to personally give up a lot of crap in the last several months. So is everyone. And the reason why is because we are living in a society that is dealing with something that affects us all collectively. I understand that guys like, you know, Ryan Day and Nick Saban and Davis Winnie want to say, I can control this. I can control my team, all that stuff. But I am skeptical. And look, I want to tell you something. If the, if the medicine, if the science supports it being okay, and yes, they can control this and infections are going down and deaths are going down, which is what it looks like in the past few days, right? If that's the case, then 
and, and, they, and it can be done safely, I'm on board with that. If the medical professionals say that's okay, then I'm cool with it, right? But if they say it's not okay, no amount of gnashing of teeth from fans, from the media, from other people are going to convince me that that's the right move. I care way more about what medical professionals say than what I care about me, frankly, because my opinion is kind of moot because I'm not the one who has the expertise and the information here. That's what we're talking about. And, and when we talk about the shift right over the weekend, I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that they started to see anecdotal, uh, some anecdotal stuff and also some data-driven stuff about what it does to people's hearts. They looked at some of these players who have suffered long-term damage to their lungs and to their uh, internal organs and their hearts. And they're going, I don't know that we can, I don't know that we can make a judgment call for sure on this. So that's my rant. And I, I, I just, again, it's not that I don't want college football to be played. I just want the people making that decision to not be some random people on the internet who really want football to happen or the media. I want it to be medical professionals who have the best interest in the community in mind. That's what I'm worried about. And and here's the thing too, I, I think, cause in our audience is, is, uh, I would say more astute than than average, and and are not, uh, you know, Molotov cocktail social media flingers uh, out there going nuts. But just in case um, somebody listening isn't on the same page, keep in mind that the thing that ultimately will keep us from having a college football season is coronavirus, not the president of Ohio State University, right. or not the athletic director, or not the board of trustees. It's it's the coronavirus and our societal response to the coronavirus more more specifically it's not uh that and you know and don't give me the oh the media has, has fueled this nonsense don't give me the oh you know it, it's uh, this it's that no it's look you know everything johnny just said uh about keeping keeping people safe now i do think that there's a discussion to be had and, and this is what leaders like Gene Smith and the president of the university and the other members of the big 10 community should be discussing, you know, there is a risk reward trade-off to so many things in life, you know, and we've had to make decisions as, um, you know, individuals, do we, uh, expand our bubble, you know, say, so say for example, in our case, um, we've, we've chosen to interact with the families on either side of us in our neighborhood, mm -hmm. you know, to kind of expand our bubble, uh, social distancing, mask wearing, that sort of thing. But we we needed some additional kind of social interaction in our household, so we're trying to do that responsibly. But you have to you have to weigh that. So if we do that, then we don't do this, like go visit our grandparents because we don't want to risk you know infecting grandma and grandpa because we've been interacting with other people in our community. You know, so there's there's trade offs like that, uh, and you do that every day, right? You you might say. Um, you know, it seems like a really bad idea to jump out of a perfectly functional airplane, but people <laughs> enjoy the thrill of skydiving and do it sure. every day, right? Like that's a trade-off of risk versus versus payoff. So if you're the Ohio State University and you're saying we will take an 80 to $100 million hit um, at least if we don't have football, and that means we will have to uh, fire staff members, uh, cancel some sports, you know, all of these kind of other things. Uh, you know, then maybe you're, maybe you're willing to have that discussion of what sort of risk are we willing to take on? If you're an 18 to 22 year old college football player, you assume you're invincible. So, yeah. you know, you're, you're just like, let us play, let us play, let us play. Especially if you're somebody who has dreams of playing on Sunday mm -hmm. and need this job interview to propel you to that, you know, Joe, Joe Burrow 
made the case on Twitter that if this had happened to him a year ago, he'd be looking for a job right now. Instead, he's QB number one with a pretty fat signing bonus and um, right. good good rookie money to his name. So, you know, there are real economic realities to not having college football. It's not about us as the fans, right? It's about the people who work at Ohio State and Michigan and Iowa and Northwestern, wherever else, who will lose their jobs if it doesn't happen and so on. And as importantly, more so importantly, maybe, I don't know, depending on how you look at it, uh, we, we're kind of handling these athletes, you know, loaded gun and saying, well, you know, you know, it's loaded. Do with right. it what you will, right? Do with it what and you he, will. And so my my point on this is that I am incredibly sympathetic to these players. And I, I don't deny the strength of their argument in saying, look, we, we have worked for this. We've practiced for this. This is basically our entire lives leading up to this. We don't want to just give it up. In a lot of cases, I mean, you think about guys like Justin Hilliard, like a lot of these dudes who don't have the opportunity or may not have the opportunity to really just like live their dream and may not ever get that again. Like that is a devastating, difficult thing. I don't want to take that away from them at all. I don't want to say that that's not something that shouldn't, you shouldn't listen to that. That's not something to be considered. Um, I do, however, worry and am skeptical of people like Davis Swinney who would co-opt that and say, oh yeah, you know, that's, (laughs) they want to do it. So we got to do it. And I just, to me, for a sport that, expects so much of its players and gets so much from its players to kind of go ahead and say like, well, now we got to listen to them. It, it just feels really, really disingenuous. Um, and we're going to get into that in a little bit, but I just, to me, we are just looking at it from a wrong angle. And it, it, if you're, if, if college football doesn't happen, which I actually think, I, I think there's a possibility and we're going to get into kind of Ryan day's comments and whatnot. If college football does not happen though um we shouldn't be upset that you know administrators made a certain decision or something like that i think we should be upset that we collectively did not make the right choices necessary to make sure that it could happen we should be pissed that we didn't handle this the right way as a society as a community because that we let them down if that's the case if that's what happens it's not because some administrator made a bad decision and that's their fault it's our fault we didn't do what had to be done to make sure that it could happen and that's it feels like so much passing of the buck that's what really bothers me about this we just keep passing out like say it's not our fault it's not our fault it's not our fault well you can make proper choices when things like this start to make sure that you get what you want towards the end. And if that doesn't happen, then that's on you, not on somebody making the decision to try to cover your ass. Well, I think what you said right there just is, is where I am about this whole situation. It's the passing of the buck. I, I said this on Twitter uh, earlier in the week and I'll stand by it. You know, the NCAA's response uh, or non-response to, to COVID-19 illustrates, illustrates the uh, underlying undying principle that everything rises and falls on leadership and yes. had the NCAA or maybe, maybe the NCAA isn't equipped to handle this. Maybe there needs to be a, as somebody sometime suggested uh, a commissioner of college football, like there are for the professional leagues more on that in a minute. Mm-hmm. Uh, if there was a central, you know, sort of decision-making leadership entity uh, yeah, responsible to the conferences and therefore, of course, to the, the the university presidents and so on. But but if there was a central leadership, either if Mark Emmert had a spine and or 
there had been a commissioner of the power fives or whatnot to say, gang, here's what we're doing. This is what our protocols will look like. Here's when we're testing. Here's what you're able to. Instead, you let the poo roll downhill and you let each conference do its own thing, which meant that you had five different plans. And within conferences, more likely than not, it was we'll let each school do its own thing. So here you have, you know, we, we talked about this several weeks ago. Schools like Michigan and Iowa are releasing regular updates on their testing results. Ohio State is not. Um, you know, so you have all these differences and variations. In the past week, this this news cycle of never-ending news cycles, you know, you saw um, more information come out about, okay, here's our testing plan. Here's how this is going to happen. We had the schedules that they called the collapsible or the Jenga schedule. So we've built in these, these bye weeks in such a way that we can postpone and delay games if need be and, and all those kind of things. You know what, game? These are things that we should have been hammering out all summer long, right? Yeah. I mean, going back to March, the the effort, it should have been like spinning up the war effort in World War II. It should have been all hands to the pump to try to figure out if we're going to do this, how to make it happen. And if we're not, because here's the other part of the story, but we go back to a lack of leadership. Uh, we're now at a point where it, we may really not have college football and there are no answers to questions like, well, what does that mean for eligibility? What does that mean for uh, this? What does that mean for that? You know, and so coaches were were kind of uh, leaking to their friends in the media throughout the day Monday that they're really frustrated that players are asking them questions they can't answer about what happens if we if we don't have football. Uh, and, and that all goes back to the fact that we've done this same. We did this, um, you know, between the federal government and the states, and it's a great analogy. When you let it roll downhill to the individual entities, you're going to have a a Heinz 57 approach and, right. and it's not going to work. NCAA, let it just pass the buck onto the individual conferences and schools. It hasn't worked. You had some universities or some teams that had truckloads of positive test results and you had others that had none. Um, everything rises and falls on leadership period. Right. And and you have, I mean, you've got tweets from Ohio State players saying, like, we basically know as much as the average fan right now, which to me is unacceptable. I think that's absolutely insane. If players want to be pissed about something, they can definitely be pissed about that. That is ridiculous to me that you don't have the kind of direction in either Ohio State or the Big Ten or, you know, college football at large in the entire country to be able to tell players like, this is our direction. This is what we're looking at. And today is really just emblematic of that because so many, you know, stops and starts about, okay, we're going to vote. Oh, no, this is just the like director director's meeting. Oh, they're actually not going to make any determinations. People are just making this up as they go. And like you said, the lack of leadership is really galling. And, you know, (laughs) if you're an athlete, it doesn't matter. I mean, anything, if you're any college athlete and you're just sitting there going like what the hell why do you have any plan in place whatsoever and the answer really right now appears to be no um now ryan day went on espn a few hours ago actually as of this recording and he kind of gave um you know his opinion on it and i i think that a lot of times college football coaches become kind of the the spokesman right the the people doing the you know the press you know, releasing things. They're the they're the megaphone for the conferences that they're in, um, especially guys like Davis Winnie and Ryan Day and Nick Saban and so on, uh, Lincoln Riley. And Ryan Day went on, gave a full-throated uh, endorsement of, you know, his players and supporting what they were saying, uh, saying that they absolutely want to fight for a season. 
and that you don't have to make a decision one way or the other. You can still push back the season. You can still, you know, kind of, you know, delay it a little bit and see what's going on. I, I'll be honest, as someone who is really skeptical about how COVID has been handled just at all levels of society, I don't think that's a terrible idea. I, I, I think that this could be hopefully a wake-up call for a lot of these organizations to say, look, if you want this to actually happen, you're going to have to start planning right now. Like things have to happen today, Monday, August 10th, 2020. You have to start making plans because if any football is going to happen, right, we can kick the can down the curb for about three weeks. But if anything's going to happen, you got to start showing some leadership. I appreciate Ryan Day getting on and saying what he did. I don't know, again, how likely college football is to happen, but if it is going to happen, I think that's the approach that you got to take. And and honestly, Ryan Day and a lot of the players, at least, on the team have been really impressive to me uh, in terms of how they've expressed themselves and handled themselves. They've been really, I think, impressive in terms of um, leader, like in that form of leadership, I think they've done a really great job. Yeah, and, and, you know, to to hammer home the point of how disjointed and just – disappointingly um, poor the leadership has been at the NCAA level and, and to an extent, the conference level, I guess you, you might as well, or maybe the intra-conference level, if you want to say how the P5s are working and playing well together, I guess there's a part of me that just sort of hoped that those five uh, you know conference commissioners would be, you know, talking and making things happen together, right. kind of in lockstep, lockstep, and and clearly that's not the case. You had Greg no. Sankey out there on Monday subtweeting uh, other conferences because the the SEC is going to play regardless, you know, hell or high water, right. whether they will or not. You know, who knows? But they'll be the last ones to cancel, and then it'll be like, well, we would have played, but these other bastards, you know, <laughs> um, where the Big Ten clearly wants to take the high road and and say, you know, we're going to be the if we've got to be the ones to take the first shot. You know, we will. Uh, but you had on Monday, as this story was breaking, that there may no be may not be any football. Ohio State's having its picture day for crying out <laughs> right. loud, you know, like Ohio State's yeah. having its picture day and regularly scheduled team yeah, activities. Uh, you know, Iowa on the other hand canceled their practice because this was happening. So, you know, talk about opposite ends of the spectrum within the same conference. Presumably, their athletic departments have access to the same information, right. and you know. Uh, where where are we? So the other thing, and I want to pivot a little bit because I could spend the whole hour here just hammering away at the degree of incompetence we've seen or or lack of you know any discernible um, leadership from from the macro at the macro level of college football. The other thing that I find really interesting is, and we alluded to this earlier, but the pivot from even just a few months ago, we didn't, we wanted the players to, you know, basically shut up and stick to sports. <laughs> right. And and now seemingly overnight, we're, we're all ready unanimously to back the idea of a players association. If it gets That's us right. college football this fall, I, I love the cognitive dissonance. I mean, I think it's a great illustration that we are willing to do any kind of mental gymnastics necessary. If it supports our personal warm and fuzzies in this case, uh-huh. college football, um, but I, I think there's some really interesting things that are happening here, whether or not college football happens this season, whether it's postponed, whether it's outright canceled, it's going to be real hard to put the genie of this year back in the bottle. Oh yeah. There's no way college sports, I mean, not just college football, college sports period are going to look anything in the future. Like they have, you know, for the past 20, 30 years, it, it, there's, this is a 
seismic shift that is not going to be undone. Um, I will say this. There are a lot of people who might be saying, all right, yeah, you know, unionization, pay these players. It's great. And I, I look, I'm on board with that. But I got to tell you something. Just because people are telling these players now, like, rah, rah, we're behind you. Yeah, this is great. That means nothing. They will drop those play. Like, let's say that college football does or doesn't happen. Whatever. Seven or eight months from now, if this topic comes up again, I promise you, promise you, so many of those same people who are rooting for those players right now and saying, yeah, I agree with you. You're a great leader. You're a great kid, blah, blah, blah. If those same kids come out and say, okay, but how about paying us? They'll drop them like a hot potato. They will not continue to support them because right now it's about immediacy it's about getting what we want which is college football once that's either gotten or lost i don't know that a lot of people continue to support that so it's really going to be the onus is really going to be on both the players and their coaches to continue this going forward because i don't you know they can't rely i think on public perception uh to carry this through for you know some of the bigger things that uh you know college athletes have been pushing for particularly like we talked about with pac-12 and whatnot yeah, and, and and I mean, there's a big distinction between when we I was pretty critical of the Pac-12 because I thought a lot of what the their demands <laughs> I still love that they call them demands. <laughs> no, yeah, what their demands and and what a difference, right? Because their thing was these are our demands or we won't play. And now you have you know Ohio State's players and then uh, you know uh, Trevor Lawrence at Clemson and others leading the charge saying <laughs> we want to play hell or high water. You right. know, it's like. Well, back to my back to my top of the hour comment. Life comes at you fast. You know that's a major change in tone. It is from what the Pac-12 players of Pac-12 United or whatnot came out, and then you had the the open letter kind of from ostensibly from the five conferences, the players of the five conferences coming out over the weekend and and saying we want to play and we want a season and so on. But but what what really drives home the idea that having some sort of player organization, players association, whatever it looks like. I know uh, a lot of listeners will recoil at calling it a union, but let's call it a players association. That's what the NFL does. Sure. If there was one and, and we further pulled off the bandaid of amateurism a little bit, there's a real simple solution to this college football thing, right? It's like, just, just do what the NHL's done. Do what the NBA's done. Sure. Uh, you know, the bubble worked. The bubble. Yeah, worked. clearly. <laughs> So, right. but why aren't we doing the bubble? Because like a reasonable person could say, well, why aren't we doing a bubble? Like the yes. Big, Ten, Big Ten could do a Big Ten bubble. Not, not a big deal, right? They could very easily do a Big Ten bubble. And I realize I'm overgeneralizing a lot by saying very easily, but but it's been proven that you can do a bubble. Uh, the logistics of it are a challenge, sure, but can't tell me that Chicago or Indianapolis or Columbus, Ohio couldn't figure out how to have enough hotel rooms to to do a bubble. All right, but let's... so. Why aren't we doing a bubble? Well, if we do a bubble, even if we do it on campus, even if we just do it on each individual campus, right? And say, okay, the athletes are going to live in the Blackwell, just as a relevant example in Columbus, and they're going to eat, sleep, and breathe, and they're going to be shuttled from the Blackwell to the Woody and back, and that's it. Right. Why are we doing that? Well, because then we'd be saying, wait a minute, (laughs) aren't these people basically employees of the university at this point that we're... We're forcing them, in essence, or, or inviting them voluntarily to give up their right to go run around South Campus or, you know, uh, whatever it might be. Like, that's the sort of the last veil. We can't do a bubble because we're still holding on to the veil of amateurism. And so then if you pull that off and say, all right, we're going to go full on bubble 
well, then don't you have to compensate them for giving up all of those other sort of liberties? And that's the trade-off. Okay. Yes. As a player, I'm willing to live in this bubble and do these things because you're paying me to. <laughs> right. But, but we're, but we're not doing that now. I still have very real concerns, you know, as to what the pay the players thing looks like outside of the revenue sports. And, you know, sure. what does, what does the captain of, of, uh, you know, the, the men's volleyball team, what, do, what does that look like for them? And how do the, how do the revenues from football's largest trickle to the other sports or not? And is that fair or not? And, you know, so I think there are very real concerns about how you just get past the, the philosophical thing of pay the players, but, but the bubble could have worked, but we can't do the bubble because we're still clinging on to the notion of amateurism in, in college football. Yeah. And that's agree or disagree. Am I, am I, am I onto something there? No, I I 100% agree. And a lot of it is because they don't want to be perceived as, as having the same, you know, kind of requirements of their student athletes as the NHL or the NBA or something like that. Um, I also think a lot of it is just stubbornness. I mean, look, major league baseball did not do a bubble. We have seen what has happened in major league baseball, right? Like we, we, there are teams that can't play at all period because they are, you know, have so many infections of COVID. And I I think a lot of it was in college football that, well, you know, a, we'd have to kind of admit that this is a sham B I don't know that we actually have logistics in place to do it and C, I think we can probably figure this out anyway. And it kind of blows my mind that somebody in college football, a powers that be who want to see this happen. Cause I, I, I really do think that there's, it's not like the ADs and the presidents are united in all of this, as we just said, I mean, there's a lot of them that really, really want to play. But it blows my mind that so many of them are looking at the situation, looking at what's going on in Major League Baseball and go, couldn't be me. <laughs> it's not going to happen here. We're good. And then mm-hmm. just go ahead and move you know, forward with business as usual. It, it can't be like that. If, if you want to have college sports, it can't be like that. And as you just laid out, it's possible to do this the right way. It's just going to require them to, A, have a plan, which they don't, and B, understand that they're going to have to kind of give up this idea that, you know, the, the mythical student athlete from the 1950s just doesn't exist anymore. Um, so uh, to me, it's just, it's, it's a crazy wild situation. And I look, I want football. I just want to make sure that it's safe, not going to spread more disease and actually going to benefit the student athletes that are in it. And, and if those three conditions can't be satisfied, then I don't think you should have it. So I don't know, man. I hopefully what happens is is that the next dubcast, we are here, we're talking about it. Uh cases have gone down. They've decided that they're gonna do some kind of protocol, they're gonna do some kind of years universal testing. Um, everybody's on board with it. Medical people have cleared it and said, All right, this is a plan that might work, and then they can go forward somehow. But absent that, like I said, I'm not super optimistic. Um yeah. But I want to yeah. be. Yeah. And, and like I, I said earlier, you know, I'm at, I'm at less than 10%, probably, which is actually up a little bit. I think, <laughs> That's right. But, That's what I'm saying. You know, you know I was probably at so 5% me a chance. week ago. Yeah. Yeah. I'm firmly in. So you tell me there's a chance. And, and I see it. I get you. You know, I want to believe that with the money involved, and you, you, Jason Priestess has said this in, in our uh, staff group chats different times that, you know, you have the kind of accumulated, 
brain power of humanity on this problem, right? And I don't mm-hmm. mean the college football problem. I mean the, the broader COVID problem. Like this is how you send a man to the moon kind of when, when you have, you know, everybody pulling in the same trace like this. Now, this cynical SOB in me says we're not actually all pulling in the same trace yet, but, but, <laughs> but let's set that aside for a minute. You know, there's, so there's a part of me that says, Hey, uh, with the right kick in the pants and maybe these players and parents are the kick in the pants that some of the powers that be needed um, to get their things together, you know, you feel like they could make this happen, but at the same time, it's, you know, at what cost? At what cost do you make this happen? And it's and at the end of the day, if uh, you know everybody comes out of it fine, then nay, no, no problem. But if that one person, you know, you had the offensive lineman from Indiana, his name escapes me, Brady something or another, um, you know, had COVID nineteen and now has some serious heart complications, you know, what if what if that if that's the thing that happens, then it kind of, kind of casts a pretty dark pall over things. Um, right. And it, and, it, and it comes out much different. So it's one of these things that it could be all's well that ends well, but it could be, you know, ending pretty badly too. So I, yeah. I'm, I'm holding out hope that there's a positive outcome here. I just don't know if I know what it is yet. Well, my final comment on all of this, as, as we kind of digest it and just, you know, get out our thoughts, is I hope that no matter how this turns out, no matter what transpires in the next two or three weeks or two or three months or two or three years that all of that attention we paid to these football players and talking about how their opinion matters and whatnot. I really, really, really hope that people don't forget that and understand that they still, again, in this particular situation, I don't think their voice matters as much as medical experts, but their voice still counts a hell of a lot more than somebody who just wants football because they love football. Like they're, they're the ones incurring this risk they're the ones who are really going out and and understanding the physical toll that football in a regular season is going to take on them um, and the chances that they have so i i just hope that at the end of all of this we don't forget that players really do deserve a voice um that they do deserve to be heard and i think they need equity when it comes to you know the direction of college football along the same lines of coaches and administrators they they deserve to have that and, you know, with Trevor Lawrence and, and Justin Fields supporting, I, I'm all in on that. And I hope they get it. And I hope future athletes get it as well, because it's it's something they deserve. And when you're talking about an industry this large with this much money involved, I think it's absurd that they're not. So, again, hopefully that's that's a positive thing that comes out of all of this. It becomes a little more equitable, a little more fair, a little more balanced. And um, we can make decisions a little bit better than we've seen the leadership, the non-athlete leadership of college football make over the past several weeks. Um, so that's that's that for now. <laughs> There's a lot more that we're going to be talking about in the future, I'm sure. And, and obviously, this is all subject to change by the hour. Um, but we do want to remind you that if you enjoy the Dubcast, you enjoy what we're doing on the site, please support us uh, via the Dry Goods Store. Uh, drygoods.11warriors.com shirts hats stickers all kinds of stuff masks of course uh go ahead and check those out get get your uh, fill of amazing uh you know 11 warriors merchandise let's do a little ask us anything bit of a bit of a tone change i want to say for ask us anything <laughs> not quite the same not quite the same tenor as the first two-thirds of this podcast so you can ask us questions to ask us anything 
by sending them to dubcast at 11warriors.com or at 11dubcast on Twitter. And the first one, I got to tell you something. So we had we had uh, puppy chat last time. And uh, this one, this is I don't know, even know if this is necessarily a question from Matt in Minneapolis, but he does want to throw in. I'm not going to read the entire thing, although he, I, I got to say he provided some really incredible pictures of his family and his dog. And I may have to uh, email this guy back and see if he gives us permission to use his uh, dog. Uh, I want I really want to put this picture in the Dubcast uh, post. Um, but he's throwing his hat in for the Rhodesian Ridgeback. Oh, and, my God, those are uh, great dogs, Matt. They great are absolutely dog. great dogs. I actually have a little bit of experience with the Rhodesian Ridgeback. Do you really? Yes, I do. I, I've had a number of family members who have had them. And uh, I remember when I was a kid, I was weirded out by them because I'm like, what? Why would they? I don't understand. Um, but they're big dogs. They're big dogs, but they're just friendly as all get out. They're just they're goofy. You know what I mean? They have a lot of personality. Uh, really good family dogs. Um, and so he talks about, uh, you know, they're a very tolerant breed for younger families, very much wash and wear. The girls do everything from putting nail polish and makeup on them to riding them like a pony. Uh, Cause he's 130 pounds, which is pretty great. Yeah. Um, and they do, and they have a they long, pretty long lifespan. So I, I agree there, Matt in Minneapolis, Rhodesian Ridgebacks. They're, they're fun dogs. They're that's definitely, I'm all in on them. They're great. And, I, and I'll say I've never owned or handled um, a Ridgeback, but and and I never really thought much of them at all. Like as in, I just literally didn't think of them. And there's so many breeds of dogs out there. And when I started dating dog trainer Barbie and we started going to obedience and agility trials, mm-hmm. um, there was somebody at one of these agility trials that we went to that was running um, a Rhodesian. And it just caught my eye because they're, I mean, they're really gorgeous dogs on the move. Oh, yeah. and, and they're very, they're, they're stout. Like you have to think about the function. So I go back to, when I was prattling on about my Norwegian elk hounds, you know, they're, they're bred to track and hunt and bait moose, right? So that's, that's their function dictates uh, that they're designed to be able to go through the woods and the brush and their coat is designed to keep them warm in the Norwegian winters and all these sort of things. The Rhodesian Ridgeback's a lion hunting dog, right? So you've, yeah. you've got a dog here that can keep up with and is strong enough to deal with the critters out there on the veldt that might have intent to do it harm. And so they're these just beautiful, gorgeous, muscular, athletic dogs that just move beautifully. So that's a, that's a great call, Matt. Good, good dog. Um, yeah. Well done. I look forward to seeing the pictures. Yeah. I, <laughs> I so I'm a huge sucker for like, dogs uh doing human things honestly and maybe and maybe that's the genesis of my airbud obsession um yeah maybe then we will figure this out i know it's maybe that's it uh but i i just i freaking love it so anytime uh dogs are wearing like sunglasses you know what i mean <laughs> or you know like any or put a shirt on a dog i just i can't stop laughing at it and uh yeah do you, i mean uh, do you have the dogs playing poker fo- oh, you know, yeah, painting in me. your study is that okay you definitely it's just need that. the absurdity of it and i don't know but it's I could go on a big long ramp, but I absolutely love it. So Remy here, uh, the Rhodesian Ridgeback, um, is wearing sunglasses in one of these pictures, and I just absolutely love it. So I'm gonna I'm gonna send an email to Matt here and and see if uh, he'll let us use that because it reminds me it reminds me of, like Spuds McKenzie, you know what I mean? Like that's a yes, little bit I love before Spuds my time. McKenzie. Spuds McKenzie's a little bit before my time, but I know of him because uh, Chris Sabo was uh, related. Like they they called him Spuds. 
That was like his nickname yep. because they said he looked like Spud McKenzie. And uh, I also have these two giant like uh, Spuds McKenzie plastic cups that my uh, my aunt and uncle gave to me when I moved <laughs> when I moved up to Columbus on my own. They're like, you need some uh, you need some cups, and I'm like, yeah, I don't own any cups. And so they gave me these giant, you know, ancient yellowed plastic Spuds McKenzie cups, and they were fantastic. I still use them; they're great. I love them. Um, all right, so this next one's from St. Louis Wookie. This is a two parter, and it's a Star Wars related question, which I really love. Uh, part one. All right. So he says, if Star Wars episode one and three and seven and nine, which are the prequels and the sequel trilogy, were released without episodes four through six, which is the original trilogy, would Star Wars fandom still be what it is today? AKA, how good is the original trilogy uh, that it's uh, that that's it's since held up to six admittedly not so great movies? Wow. That's I mean, that's a that's a big question, right? So oh, I, I don't. I'll tell you right now, it, 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 those those six movies, if they were released, you got to understand, I watch, okay, so I've watched these movies, all of them, but obviously, you know, most often the original trilogy. I've watched these movies basically on repeat, either in my head or on television, <laughs> since I was about four or five years old. This is, this is something that I, I, I've seen a lot of Star Wars, okay? The thing about Star Wars is, is that even for somebody like me who was born in 1985, I still understood the Star Wars phenomenon, I guess you could say. Because Star Wars came yeah. out in the late, like the original movie came out in the late 70s. And really it dominated media and, and really are like movie sci-fi consciousness for a really, really long time. In a way that I don't think people can really fully appreciate now because we're kind of in this Marvel era and all this other stuff, which I still love. I think it's great. but if you were born like let's say mid nineties and beyond, or maybe 2000 and beyond, like if you're in your twenties, you know, mid twenties, I don't know that you can fully appreciate just the, the looming presence star Wars had over like nerdy sci-fi fandom. It it was everything. Um, Without those original three movies, the other six are nothing like there. I like rogue one. I think that's a really fun movie, but man, they're nothing because Star Wars, when it came out, I, I read this um, this AV Club uh, ongoing series. It's called Box Office Champs, where they, this guy does a deep dive into the highest grossing movies of each year. And the stuff that he's talking about with Star Wars and, and how it just completely just... And we're talking the 1970s. This isn't in the internet age where everybody's sharing memes and, and everybody's communicating all the time. The way Star Wars dominated public consciousness when it came out it's really, I don't think there's anything really comparable to that. Um, so yeah, I, the other six movies, forget it. They're trash (laughs) without, without those original three, they're nothing. Well, yeah. And so then, you know, well, the thing I wonder about and and the way I was kind of taking part of the question too, was if you released the original trilogy, not the prequel trilogy, but I mean the good ones, if you release them today, you know, how would those movies play today compared to when they came out in 1970? nine through you know 80 like that would be really interesting the thing that when you were talking about like the social media you know we didn't have that and people sharing memes and things going viral i mean there's a bit of an ironic twist to that in that the we had these cultural touchstones like star wars to and to an extent star trek uh, there were, you know, things back then that we were all part of, you know, people watched the miniseries roots, like everybody watched that, right. It was oh, like yeah. a, a national thing. Everybody, 
but you only had, you know, three television channels right. and, and so on. <laughs> now think about the kind of the cultural touchstones. What's even come close to that? Uh, the Avengers, I guess the, you know, the Marvel cinematic universe, maybe like uh, I remember seeing the first Avengers movie in the theater and we actually went to see it probably three times and mm-hmm. it, that, that felt like a big deal. But, but beyond that, like Game of Thrones, everybody talked about Game of Thrones, but it was on HBO and like what, 10% of the population gets HBO or, right. you know, Breaking Bad or The Wire or the what, like there are cultural kind of lodestones are getting smaller and smaller where yeah, well, and something they, like they Star Wars, everybody was on board with. And they don't stick in our consciousness as long either. Like Avatar grossed a bajillion dollars. It was the highest grossing film of all time until uh, Endgame took it over. Uh, I don't think about Avatar ever. I don't think that's a movie I would no, ever no. want to revisit. Um, I think that really the last movie to do that, and it's interesting because this is kind of the same time frame as the you know the second trilogy, right? The prequels coming out is probably Titanic. Titanic, maybe not for me personally because I didn't like Titanic. I saw it in the movie. By the way, I have a really great story about Titanic because <laughs> um, this is well, it's not pre-internet, but it's pre-me having internet, and. Um, I didn't know anything about Titanic uh, except um, it's about a boat that sank. Right. And, you know, I didn't know it was a romance. I just thought it was going to be like action, like, you know, like a side adventure basically. Yeah. And I think that's what my dad thought too. So my dad and I go see this movie on opening weekend <laughs> by together by ourselves. We didn't take my sister or my mom. And I'm like, what didn't that come out like 97? So I'm like 12 years old. I'm like 11 years old, which is just the worst possible sign to see Titanic in a movie theater with your dad by yourselves. <laughs> and I just remember doing all like the sex scenes and stuff. My face, my head was just <laughs> like locked in straight forward because if I, I knew if I had made eye contact with my dad at any point during any of those scenes in that movie, I would have exploded in a shower confetti. Like there's no way I would have been able to handle any kind of human interaction with him at all. <laughs> so like I'm this preteen going like, Oh my God, just, end, just, end. this is awful. I don't want to be like here with one my of dad. your French girls, Jack. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> don't look um, at dad. Don't look at dad. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. And, but the movie was in theaters for like a year and it, you know, and at that <laughs> yeah. point it was the highest grossing. And I, I think that's the last time we had a movie like that, that was, that dominated social consciousness like that. Um, you can make a lot of money, but that, that doesn't necessarily mean you're changing how people think about movies. Um, yeah, I, I think, yeah, but, but to the question, you know, the original trilogy is great. It's a fun adventure movie just on the face of it, but you know what it meant for the process of making movies and how people watch movies, it just, it changed the game. And I, I don't know that there's a whole lot that the prequels or the sequels really added to that legacy. I, I think you can just give me the original three and I'm cool with it. I think the thing, you know, to, to me, the, the rest of the movies to, to some extent, not in my, my challenge was how they, how they actually delivered on this promise. But I was, I was there for like the payoff. There had been sort of this idea that George Lucas had this nine series serial epic planned out. And so like, I, you know, for years was like, man, really like to know the rest of the story. You know, I'd really like to know what, what happened and, and the stuff about like Darth Vader. Cause I'm a sucker for Darth Vader. Like how did Darth Vader become Darth Vader? Like I, I, I was into that, right? Like what happened to Anakin Skywalker? And so I was, I, I enjoy the prequel trilogy for that. Like, because, okay, I, I, I get how we got from here to here. 
I have questions and issues and challenges and criticisms about how we got from here to here, but like, I, I, I appreciate at least the, Oh, okay. Um, and it is kind of funny and geeky to be like, you know, go back now and pick apart things like, Oh, why did Obi-Wan say this when he was talking to Luke when clearly he knew, <laughs> and, you know, or yeah. huh, how come R2D2 didn't, you know, like tell everybody what was going on. Oh, okay. Well, we sort of explained some of these things away in the, the later movies. And I'm grateful because, you know, now we've got the Mandalorian, which was fantastic. And Rogue One was very good and, and so on. So there's still, there's still things to get out of it. And oh, sure. Yeah. All and that, there's, but, there, yeah. there's a lot of fun stuff associated with Star Wars, but I, if I'm just focusing on the, the main movies, I just, you know. Yeah. The original three were just chef's kiss. Yeah, I agree. Uh, so the second part here, just real quick, he says, uh, St. Louis Wookiee says that he's a big believer in the music makes the movie. How much credit should be given to John Williams scores for the success of Star Wars? Uh, probably about half. <laughs> to two thirds i'm i am a john williams stan uh yeah. the the man is a, a living legend he is still alive i hope uh he was last time i checked uh i mean a musical brilliant a musical genius his work is brilliant i don't think he's ever scored a bad track um he can take crap movies and make them worth watching with the scores and the star wars scores in particular you know are just incredible like you can hear you hear a Star Wars song in any of them, any of the Star Wars tracks, mm-hmm. and you know it's a Star Wars movie. Like, think about that. Like, you can just hear it and be like, oh, yeah, that's Star Wars. You can hear songs and know they're John Williams tracks in, in general. One of the best things I ever did, um, my, my, my one of my college roommates, one of my best friends in the world, Jesse, and I went uh, and saw um, John Williams conduct the Columbus Symphony Orchestra um, doing, you know, so, and he would, and they had video on the screen, and he would talk about, you know, the process of scoring some of these great movies. And so of course you're hearing the Harry Potter tracks and you're hearing, you know, he talks about Jaws and you just go back through his catalog. uh, And they're just, it's flawless. It's flawless. Well, what's hilarious to me. I mean, I really encourage actually people to go look at the things that he's done scores for. Cause it's, you may be actually surprised. Like you'll know he does, you know, Steven Spielberg and, and raise the lost ark and ET and Jurassic Park, all that stuff. You might be fantastic. Yeah. Right. But you might also be surprised they did the score for Home Alone, which is like, again, the perfect, uh, you know, Christmas type score. Uh, And he also did some really ridiculous ones, too, which I also find really hilarious. Um, Like he did. uh, Oh, where is it? I just passed it. There's one in the 80s. He did. He did Space Camp, which is pretty good. Um, He uh, I mean, you know, he did Heart Beeps. That one's good. uh you know there's just it's fun he did uh <laughs> he did superman 4 so yeah. that's that's legit although his score for super i mean you know that's insane um but to me it's just the music really kind of makes those movies and it's it's pretty evident in, in what he's able to do so i mean uh, the other thing too is i just i marvel at his longevity yeah as a as a composer you know i mean he's when you when you just look at the the wikipedia list of john williams movies you know and you he's got stuff back in the 50s of of um films but but really you know started hitting his his stride in um the 60s especially the 70s i mean that's when you first started seeing things like when you start talking about jaws and and the you know the steven right. spielberg things but by the time he'd done by the time he'd done jaws and star wars close encounters of the third kind and and so on you know he uh he'd already done scores for, you know, two dozen movies. Nobody's ever heard of. I mean, he just put, put, 
pumped out a truckload of work. And then, you know, to fast forward, he's still scoring these Star Wars films in, you know, the 2010s and, and this unnamed Indiana Jones movie that's allegedly coming out in a couple of years. You know, so here's a guy who's been working and, and putting out blockbusters for six decades. It's incredible. Yeah, it's it's pretty amazing. And the other thing I would say is, on the flip side of that, when you watch a movie that you really love, but you hate the score or the soundtrack, um, it just it sticks out like a sore thumb. Like, I love, I freaking love the movie Witness, right? Peter yeah. Weir and, and Harrison Ford. I, yeah. I love that movie. But the entire soundtrack is this weird synth, like, like, it's just... It's it's garbage, yeah. and you like when I was a kid, I loved uh, Gettysburg, which is really it was a made for TV movie, but then they released it in theaters, even though it's like four hours long. Yep. Uh, it even had an intermission for God's sake. But the score is like somebody did it on a Casio over a weekend. It's just it's <laughs> hot garbage. So yeah, guys like John Williams and the people who can do scores are really uh, underappreciated sometimes. I mean, I, you know, he obviously gets a lot of credit, but the people who can really pump out some memorable um soundtracks to movies i think deserve a lot of credit it's pretty they're really the modern day like you know beethoven's composers people who enter like i talked about that public consciousness that you remember that really sticks with you like i can remember duel the fates phantom menace is a terrible movie but but i remember duel the fates is a great banger of a song like Like the the, uh that's legit the other one we didn't mention too is you know his work with the Olympics. You know, and I'm a sucker oh, sure, for yeah. the, I'm a sucker for the Olympics. But I mean, from you know writing the fanfare uh, for the opening ceremonies in 1984, and then you know then the 88 Olympics, 80, 96 Summer Olympics in Atlanta, um, some of the heroes, then Call of Champions in 2002. And there's just I mean he's just stuff that's in our collective conscious. Right. Um, I would yeah. love to do a podcast about like sports music that would, we should, if we get the opportunity sometimes we should talk about like our favorite themes and, and associated sports. Cause I still love, you know, John Tesh doing the round ball rock and talking about how he came up with it. And, you know, there's a clip on YouTube with him and a concert where he, uh, he came up with the ditty and he left himself a message on his answering machine. And then he plays the message for the crowd. And then he goes in freaking sweet. Um, so anyway, that's, that's, uh, that's a great set of questions. And I appreciate, uh, both of you for sending those in and, and keep sending them in. Cause you know, who knows what the future might bring and, you know, we might need a little bit of levity in the future. Who knows? Yeah, a little bit, um, a little bit. Yeah. So next week we'll be back to uh, dissect all the goings and, and comings of, of college football and sports and, you know, round ball rock and dogs and all kinds of other things. Uh, but until then I'm Johnny, I'm Andy, and we'll see you next time.